It's good to uh, see you all this Lord's Day. Um, we are feeling mostly better. I uh, still have a bit of a froggy throat, as you can hear, but I'm in the clear, according to the doctor, uh, according to the CDC guidelines and everything. We are feeling on the mend, and uh, I bring greetings from my family. They wish they could be here, too. Our scripture reading this morning, uh, our Old Testament reading, comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Isaiah chapter 41 through 11. It's page 638 in the church Bible if you'd like to follow along there. Loved ones, this is God's very word, so let's give it our full attention now. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And our New Testament reading this morning, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And this will be our sermon text. Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 12. It's page 850 on the church Bible there in the pew if you want to follow along. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's seek him now to bless it to us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law. We pray that you would show us our Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and excellency. Show us ourselves in the light of your word, in the light of your holiness. Work in us by your spirit that which you would have in us. Teach us true repentance as we consider our king who is coming. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's been a little while since we were in Matthew's Gospel. We finished up the first two chapters back, I think it was in November. And uh, in those first two chapters, we looked at the origin story of the Christ, the Messiah, the King who was to come, Jesus Christ. And now Matthew has moved out of that, those first two chapters, describing who this Christ is, what his mission is going to be, laying that important groundwork. And he turns from that to the main action of the story, and he drops us right into the middle of it. Um, He drops us right into the middle of the action uh, there in uh, in Matthew chapter 3. We we are suddenly transported to the wilderness of Judea. It's hot, arid, not a a desert as as we might think of it, right, With, with sand dunes and such, but hot, arid, rocky, dusty, mostly uninhabited, very, very sparse population. But we're there by, by the River Jordan running through this wilderness area, and we, 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 we see this man clothed with camel skin, with a leather belt around his waist, and we hear that he eats locusts and wild honey. This is a not-your-typical uh, scene. This is not a, a typical thing you'd see every day. And, and it's not like he's um, all alone out there in the wilderness. He's not some crazy preacher that no one listens to. Uh, crowds, huge crowds are coming out to him. People are compelled by him. The text here in Matthew chapter 3 says, all Jerusalem, all Judea, the whole region is going out to him. There's something about this man that God has raised up. He reminds you of the prophets of old. right? His clothing. He, he looks like you think Elijah in the Old Testament would have looked like. His diet, he's being fed, you know, just by, by God's bare provision in, in the wilderness there. He is plainly dressed. Some, something about him and something about the way he speaks just draws your attention. He's deadly serious about God and the kingdom of God. His, his very lifestyle and demeanor preaches to you about how seriously he takes 
what he's saying and how seriously he takes God and what God has called him to. You can tell just by looking at John the Baptist that he is convicted to his very core that the message he speaks is from God and that you need to hear it. And he doesn't, uh, doesn't care for man's opinion one way or the other. And Matthew makes it clear as, as he introduces us to John the Baptist here, this prophet preaching in the wilderness, that he doesn't just look like one of the Old Testament prophets. He really is sort of the Old Testament prophet par excellence, the greatest of them all, as Jesus himself will say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says there, this is the great prophet who has come with a single job, a single message, and that is to prepare the way for God himself to come. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. For this is he, John the Baptist, this is he, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But it's not just this, uh, this man, uh, John, and, and his, his uh, demeanor and his attire, that is so magnetic and that's drawing people. Really, it doesn't have much to do with that. So much is the fact that God is speaking through him. It's the message that he's proclaiming. The message that God wants Israel to hear. It's the, it's the content of his preaching that is drawing these crowds. What is, what is John the Baptist's big idea? What is, you know, what's his go-to sermon? What, what, what's the series he's working on there in the wilderness of Judea? The kingdom of heaven is coming. We see his summary uh, of it in verse 1, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how Matthew sums up the whole content of John's preaching. And actually, when we turn over in just a little while to chapter 4, and we see how Jesus kicks off his preaching ministry, Identical words. Jesus says this in Matthew 4.17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's Jesus' message. It's John's message. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's coming. It's here. This is the big idea of John's preaching. It's the big idea of Jesus' preaching also. And it's the big idea of the Gospels themselves. They are all about the kingdom of heaven. If that is what John's preaching is all about. Jesus' preaching is all about. It should be important for us, don't you think? What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of heaven? What are they talking about, John and Jesus and the gospel writers, as they teach us about the kingdom of heaven? Well, they're telling us that uh, God, the king of his people, is coming into history, breaking in, establishing his perfect rule over everything. There's lots of, lots of ideas um, that people have about what the kingdom of heaven is, that it's, uh, that it's some kind of uh, a, a social program, a humanitarian effort, that it's a project that, that men and women get involved with and that we spread, uh, uh, we spread uh, a, a kind of ethics and, and that's what the kingdom is, that we can bring it uh, uh, on this earth and, and, and through human effort that God builds it that way. But the idea from Scripture is that the kingdom of heaven is God Himself coming, destroying His enemies, 
and coming and reigning Himself on the throne of Israel. God Himself is the King who has come to rule. That's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But um, you might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, why is this news, right, in, in Matthew chapter 3? Hasn't God been the king? Hasn't the kingdom of heaven been here since the very beginning? Hasn't God always been the king? Well, yes, of course he is. Uh, we saw this already uh, we, as we sang from Psalm 104 in our opening hymn this morning, proclaiming that God himself is the king. Oh, worship the king. Right? That's, uh, that's what the Old Testament teaches about who God is. He's the king. We saw it as we read there in Psalm 24 together, our responsive reading. God is the king. The Lord Yahweh is the king. So what is this great announcement in Matthew chapter 3? Isn't this old news that God is the king? Well, Matthew 3 is saying, and the Gospels are saying that it's not just now that God is reigning as king, but that he has come to reign on the throne of Israel as the king of, of his people. And he's come to definitively and finally deal with all their enemies and, and all his enemies to bring an end to the warfare and to establish his perfect reign of justice, righteousness and peace and blessing. He, he's, he's come as the king entering into history to bring about the perfect blessing of Israel. Everything that was promised to them, He has come to do. Loved ones, a question for you as we consider this kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist is announcing that God is coming. It's, it's here, uh, here in Matthew chapter 3. He's announcing God has come to establish His kingdom. It's here. It's imminent. Is that still true today? Is that true for us today? Here, 2021, 2022 now, right? Uh, Lemington, Maine. Is the kingdom of heaven coming? Uh, sometimes I think we get this sense, maybe you don't. I've had this sense before, though, that um, kingdom of heaven part one was when Jesus came and, and had his earthly ministry. And we are sort of in the middle now, waiting for a kingdom of heaven part two when Jesus returns and, and, and brings everything to completion, that we're sort of in this middle period between the kingdom of heaven coming when Jesus you know, came onto earth and waiting for him to return. We're sort of in a holding pattern, waiting for the kingdom of heaven to come. But as, uh, uh, as we see here in the Gospels, we see that uh, this announcement that kingdom is at hand means for us, loved ones, that it's just as immediate as it was for John's audience. That, 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 in fact, it's more immediate for us than it was for John's audience. John was saying the king is about to step onto the stage. Uh, uh, for us, though, he has stepped onto the stage. Right? The kingdom of heaven is no less immediate and urgent for us. In fact, it's more so the king himself has come. He has already started his reign. And it's only a matter of time now until he completes it, consummates it, brings it to completion. And so, loved ones, as we see, as we hear John here speak of this kingdom of heaven, this is, this is urgent for us. There's an immediacy here that we need to pay attention to. Now, as John goes on, we see here in, in these verses 
three things that the coming of the kingdom means for us. The kingdom is here. The king has come. What does that mean for us? We've got three things. First, judgment. This is, this is John's dominant theme here as he talks about the kingdom. The king comes, and that means judgment is coming. We see it most clearly and most uh, put most strongly in uh, John's words to the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 7 and following. In verse 7, he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he says, Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He, he, he insults them. He calls them offspring of snakes. That's uh, not just an insult. It's a statement about their spiritual state. They are sons of snakes, sons of serpents, right? We have this biblical imagery, of course, of, of uh, Satan being the serpent, Satan himself, the, the, the tempter in the Garden of Eden there as the serpent. And, and John is saying to these Pharisees and Sadducees, you are sons of serpents, suggesting what Jesus says in John 8.44, you are of your father, the devil. Strong words. Then he goes on, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? His words are, are dripping with irony there. He's, he's, he's saying, who invited you to come and repent and avoid the wrath of God? Right? He, he, he's telling them that, uh, that, that, that there is such a, a discrepancy between, between how they live and what they profess that they should not expect at all to be invited to come and repent and receive the grace of the coming king. They should rather expect the wrath of this coming king. He tells them God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is God's determined, settled uh, opposition towards sin and sinners. Uh, it, it's, it's not a general thing. It's a specific, targeted thing. He's not, uh, he's not wrathful with, with generalities. He's wrathful with sinners who've sinned against him. As, as John preaches this, of course, it wouldn't have been a shock to his audience. They would have expected this, of course. We, we, they would have read this in the prophets and seen this. God's wrath comes when the kingdom comes. God's judgment comes when the kingdom comes. But their expectation was that falls on the other guys. Uh, that, that wrath is for the enemies of God. And we are the people of God. We're the, we're, we're the good guys. We're the chosen people of God. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They're, they're, they're renowned. They're famous for how committed they are to God's law. How seriously they take God's law. Right? There's something like the way we think of perhaps our seminary professors. The teachers. The great teachers of the church. And John singles them out. It says that they are under the wrath of God. The Sadducees, similarly, they're, they're the, there's the political powers in Israel. They're the guys who are, have, have political control in Israel under Rome's authority, of course. But they, they have the, this position of leadership. And both of them, Pharisees and Sadducees, political and religious leaders of the people of Israel, John says, you guys are under the wrath of God kingdom of heaven is coming and that means judgment on on you and and he tells them that they're first in line for this judgment they would have expected something so different perhaps god's judgment would fall on the tax collectors 
the prostitutes, the flagrant sinners, but on us, the leaders of Israel, God's chosen people. We'll unpack why God's judgment is falling on them specifically in, in a little while. But, but very simply, first here, loved ones, I want us to see the implication here that no one is immune from this judgment. Well, uh, for, for John's audience, I think when they heard this, it would have been something like when, you're, when you were in school and uh, you had a really hard test. And um, after the test, everyone's, everyone's taken it, you find out that the best student in the class, top student who always aces the tests, failed the test miserably. And you get that sinking feeling that if he failed, what chance do I have? Right? And John is saying... The leadership has failed. The religious leaders, the political leaders, they've failed miserably. And I think the sense would have been, what chance does anyone in Israel have of escaping the judgment of God? And then John goes on, and he describes this judgment that's coming as something that's coming very soon. In fact, it's already started. In verse 10, he says that the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. It's already started, and the one who is bringing it is uh, the king himself. John promises that the one who is coming to complete this judgment is the one who is mightier than he is. John says that he is just the forerunner of this one. He's just come to get things ready. He's not worthy to even carry this man's, this, this one's sandals. Uh, John is a nobody in comparison with the king who's coming. And the king who's coming is going to be the one who brings this judgment. And what's he going to do? We see in verse 12 this judgment uh, illustrated for us. John says that this king is going to separate the true Israelites from the false ones, the true believers in Yahweh, the Lord, and, and, and those who are only outward believers. In verse 12, he says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So that's not an image we're probably familiar with, but John's audience would have been. It's the image of harvest time when the, the, the workers there are on the threshing floor and they take their, their pitchforks and they're tossing the grain in the air. And, and as they toss it in the air, the wind comes, blows the chaff away, the worthless stuff. It, it blows that away. And then afterwards, they sweep up the one pile right, of, of grain and gather it into the barn. And they sweep up the other pile of chaff and they burn it. And John is saying, that is what the king is going to do to you, Israel. And he's here. He's coming. He's almost here. And he is going to separate the true from the false. One he's going to justify and reward. The other is destined for the fire of the wrath of God. Loved ones, this is part of the coming of Christ. This is part of what it means that Jesus has come. This is part of the, the, what it means that His kingdom has come. He came to bring judgment. Now, when we look at the Gospels, we don't see this as, a, as, as the dominant note in Christ's teaching and His ministry. We see Him healing the sick. We see Him uh, raising the dead. We see Him forgiving sinners. He tells us He came for sinners to be their Savior. 
And yet at the same time, we do see him in the Gospels carrying out judgment on Israel, especially the religious leaders of Israel who so clearly reject him. And, and we, see, we see him, uh, we, we see the spiritual hardening of Israel that happens as Jesus comes. And so much of his own does not receive him. And we see this carried out in A.D. 70 after Jesus has ascended, right? Then sometime later, judgment does fall on Israel and the temple is destroyed. And, and we see ongoing God's judgment upon sinners throughout history. That, that uh, right, the, the plagues, the famines, the wars, the disasters. Yes, they're all signs that the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of Jesus Christ the King and judgment for sin is coming. Sometimes I think we read, uh, we read you know, John's words here and we say, all right, John, you're jumping the gun a little bit. Right? The wrath of God, the judgment of God, yes, it's coming, but, but, but surely it's not that imminent for us. But loved ones, as I was saying, the, the announcement that John makes here is not farther from us. Um, it is just as immediate for us. What John says in verse 10, already the axe is laid to the root of the trees, is still true now, today, that the judgment of God is coming. In fact, it's already begun. And if it's begun, surely soon it will be finished. It's only a matter of time till Christ does return and consummates His judgment of sin and sinners. There's a great warning here for us, loved ones. The kingdom of heaven means judgment. And it's here. And it's coming. But that's not all John is preaching on. That's his main, main topic. But he preaches also on salvation. He preaches that judgment is coming. The kingdom's coming. That means judgment. He also says the kingdom's coming. And that means salvation too. We see this implied, first of all, just implied in his announcement that the kingdom is here in verse 2. The, the coming of the kingdom means the coming of the king, and the coming of the king means the enemies of God's people are defeated, and God's people themselves are truly rescued from every danger, and every promise God made in the Old Testament is brought to its wonderful fulfillment and completion. That's salvation coming. Right, we see this fleshed out in verse 3, which was a citation of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 3, is a prophecy that the Lord is going to come, visit His people, and He's going to bring them out of exile and bring them into the promised land and save them once again. And so as John, as John is preaching this message of the coming of the kingdom, he is also preaching that salvation is here. Salvation is here. This is, this is the... the other side of the coin, you might say, of judgment, right? If, if judgment on the enemies of God is coming, it means salvation and rescue for the people of God. But then most of all, we see John preaching salvation in verse 11. As he talks about the one who is coming, he says this, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The one who is coming after John, he says, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is, what's he mean as he says that? What, what does it mean he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? Um, 
If we look back to the Old Testament, we see that there's all these prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the kingdom and the king, the day of salvation, and wrapped up with that expectancy, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, we see Isaiah 32, verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Spirit comes, blessing comes, salvation comes. Ezekiel 39, 29, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. God comes, the Spirit comes. Salvation comes. Most clearly, perhaps, of all, Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out My Spirit. That, of course, is the text that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. What's happening there on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit is being poured out and salvation is coming. John is saying, the one who comes after me, Jesus Christ, the King who's coming, is going to be the one who pours out on the people of God the Holy Spirit of God as a purifying and saving fire that cleanses them from their sin. And he's going, to, he's going to pour out this Spirit on you, Israel. And that, loved ones, was such a glorious announcement of their salvation. The Holy Spirit coming upon the people of God in a new and full way that, is never, that they'd never experienced before. In Scripture, we see the Holy Spirit right at the beginning brooding over the first creation. He's the agent of creation at the very beginning in Genesis 1. And now, here comes the Spirit as the agent of the new creation. John is saying that that, uh, what is happening as the Spirit comes on the people of God is nothing less than the great new creation of God's people. In fact, to have the Spirit of God poured out on you is to have God Himself come on you and enter into you to sanctify and save you. It's a glorious promise. And loved ones, John is announcing it's about to happen. We've seen it, haven't we? Right? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Peter there, the apostles there in that upper room. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on them. And tongues of fire come down on them. And the church, right, the new creation begins and goes out with great power. Salvation has come. It's a glorious announcement. Salvation is here. The King has come. Salvation is here. And brothers and sisters, even as with the announcement of judgment, with the coming of the kingdom being so immediate for us, So is this. We are living in the same era as the apostles and the outpouring of the Spirit in Pentecost. We're living in that same redemptive historical epoch, the same time period, the same same time of God's dealing with His people, even as Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Today is the day of salvation. Christ has come. The Spirit has come. Salvation is here. So can we. 
the day of salvation. All the promises of God are coming true. All of them in Christ for us, His church on whom rests the Spirit of God. As I said earlier, we're not in a holding pattern between the coming of the kingdom part one and the coming of the kingdom part two. We have the Spirit on us, in us. The new creation, the kingdom of God is being advanced by that Spirit. So this is what John is preaching. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the king is coming. It means judgment, means salvation. What does that mean for you? He doesn't leave us to guess. He's not interested in just making a theological point and then walking off, John. Uh, He has a very specific message, a very clearly defined point of application. It's the first word we read from his mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see this in verse 2. This is our final heading. We've seen judgment. We've seen salvation. Now, third heading, repent. Repentance means several things. I want to look at two of you loved ones from the text here. First, it means confessing your sin. John commands people to repent. That's his point of application in his preaching. Repent. And the people respond in verses 5 and 6 we read, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That's the first part of repentance. Confessing your sin to God. Right? Owning it. Acknowledging it. John doesn't say to the uh, crowds who've come out to hear him, but if you need to repent, confess your sin to God. He calls on everyone who hears him to repent. Every single person, no distinction. Everyone needs to confess their sins. Everyone. And you need to own your sin, not just confess it in a general way, yes, yes, I'm a sinner. Right? But to say, I am a sinner. In my very heart of hearts, at my core, I am a rebel and a lawbreaker, a sinner before God. I hate God and myself, and I hate others too. I'm selfish, self-centered, and it's all my own fault. Right? We, 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 we hate to acknowledge our sin. We squirm away from it. We don't want it. Right? We want to be justified in our own sight, on our own terms, on our own merits. We make excuses for our sin. But repentance begins with owning and confessing our sin and doing it specifically. Not being content with generalities. We're not condemned by generalities. We're condemned by the very specifics of our sin. We need to say, I am an idol worshiper, Lord. I am someone who misuses and dishonors and shames Your holy name. I break Your Sabbath. I dishonor my parents. I hate I kill, I get angry, I'm a fornicator and an adulterer, I'm a thief. I steal what belongs to you, I steal what belongs to others. I'm a liar, I have a covetous heart. Loved ones, you need to say that to the Lord. There is not one part of God's law that you and I have not broken. We must confess our sin and grieve over it. Have hearts that are grieved for our sin. When is the last time you felt your heart just break under the weight of your sin before God? 
That's the first part of repentance. Owning, confessing, grieving over sin. That's what the people are doing as they respond to John's message. But repentance includes more than this. It's not just a owning of your sin and a and an acknowledgement of it before God and and uh, grieving over it. It also means turning and changing. It means that you've been going one direction. Now you turn around and you go the other direction when you repent. This is what John is saying, isn't it, to the Pharisees and Sadducees? He says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There's got to be some fruit, he's saying. That's why John has, has no patience with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because they're just, they're, this is just a show for them. They're just here to check things out. Perhaps keep an eye on what's going on. Maybe pretend they're having part of this same religious experience as everyone else just to keep their credibility. But they're not here to really change. John says, you must have a repentant lifestyle. John Calvin puts it like this. He says, repentance is an inward matter which has its seat in the heart and soul, but afterwards yields its fruits in a change of life. Our catechism puts it this way. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God does with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. D.A. Carson says, repentance is a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action. Right? It doesn't mean you don't sin anymore, but it means that you are now walking in a different direction than you used to walk in. Loved ones, are you walking in repentance? Is there a sin in your life that you are actively, by the grace of God, seeking to turn from and turn to new obedience. The Pharisees and Sadducees weren't doing this. They were convinced that they were all set. That if anyone was in the family of God, they were in the family of God. All right, they had the right, they had the right uh, uh, pedigree. They had the right upbringing. They had the right background. But they're depending on all these external things. Instead of seeking the grace of God and turning from their sin. Right? They, they said, we have Abraham as our father. That's what they're depending on. John goes right to the heart of their misplaced trust in verse 9. He says, do, you, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He's saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's saying, uh, God does not need your external qualifications and your, 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 your physical traits he could raise up children of Abraham from rocks if he chose to. Right? God is the God of sovereign grace who chooses whom he will in their sin. He's not, he's not interested in, in your pedigree, Pharisees and Sadducees. There's a warning here for us, loved ones, isn't there? Especially for those of us who've grown up in the church or have been Christians for a long time. Right, we can say, well, of course I'm part of the family of God. Of course I'm not in danger of God's judgment. I'm, my parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. Or, or, or I, I, you know, I go to worship week after week, Sunday by Sunday. I'm there. I'm in the pew. 
I'm, I, I give, I tithe faithfully, I show up at the, the, the fellowship things and the prayer meetings, I, I go, I attend, I'm there. These are outward things, aren't they? They're good things, but outward things. God wants a heart and a life of repentance. Repentance is the doorway to the kingdom of heaven. That's why John starts out, and Jesus too starts out preaching this way. The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. There's no admittance to the kingdom without turning from your sin. And loved ones, it's not just how we enter the kingdom, it's how we go on living as citizens of this kingdom in repentance. Loved ones, the kingdom of heaven is here. The King has come. Our Lord Jesus Christ has come. He's going to come in greater fullness yet, but but He has come. And He is bringing judgment and He is bringing salvation. And the good news for us is that He offers salvation to all those who will repent of their sins, who are grieved over them, who want to turn from them. So won't you bow to King Jesus and repent of your sin before Him and seek His Spirit to give you a new heart, to turn and walk in new obedience. Let's pray together. Lord, we give thanks to you that you have indeed come and shown us your glorious salvation. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the immediacy and urgency of these things. We cannot, Lord, we cannot in ourselves make our hearts to be grieved over our sin, or turn our hearts away from our sin. Only you can. We pray that we would, uh, we would continue to seek your grace every day and that you'd pour out your Spirit on us, that we might walk in newness of life with our eyes fixed on our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.